0: everybody welcome to episode number 556 of this here electronic engineering podcast called Amelia's Weekly Fish Fry brought to you by eejournal.com and written produced and hosted by yours truly Amelia Dalton are you ready for a little bit of everything electronic this week Okay, not everything, but we are talking about the rise of risk 5 network on chip protocols and plant-based tiny soft medical microbots. But first, to please welcome Frank Schermeister from Arteris. Frank and I discuss risk 5 adoption, where Arteris fits in the risk 5 ecosystem and more. Hi Frank, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me, Amanda.
0: Absolutely. So we're talking about risk five today. So Frank, what do you think is driving risk five from your perspective? What's the fuss all about?
1: Well, the fuss is all about, I would say, the freedom to innovate. And there's this historically, given that I'm old enough to talk about EDA history and semiconductor history at this point, there's a thing they call Makimoto's wave, which was observed quite a bit, quite some time ago that we basically hop back and forth between generalization and specialization. And risk five is really an outgrowth, I would say, of specialization needs that people really, as Hennessy-Patterson in their Turing lecture postulated, um, that we need to really get into this golden age of semiconductors with architecture innovations and risk five is really an outgrowth of that because people need the freedom to innovate to specialize their design for their needs. And we have luckily the consumer drive to enable all that. With consumer drive, I mean the needs of us and consumers for even cooler devices, more specialized devices. And that's what's fueling all this craze around AI, ML, and risk five as a potential implementation options from an instruction set architecture.
0: So how do you see the ecosystem developing and where does Arteris fit in?
1: Well, the ecosystem is quite complex around RISC-V. There's a lot of software ecosystem in the works. You need to be able to do the programming. You need to do OSs, compilers and all that. That's already going on. They have this initiative called the RISE Initiative. The other bit is on the hardware side, the need to really bring together all those various blocks on chip into this and into your system on chip or your system of chiplets, whatever we call that. And Arteris fits into all this as a key enabler to allow you to do the plug and play. With plug and play, I mean, you want your RISC-V cores and the rest of the IP blocks you have in your design, you want all those to be connected easily. And the network on chip, and specifically the protocols like CHI, OCP, everything, AMBA, CHI being AMBA AXI, what have you. All of those are kind of the cut points where the different IP blocks fit together. And of course, we speak all those natively at Arteras with our NOC technologies, our network, on chip technology. So that's why Arteras is a key enabler, if you will, for the plug and play in the RISC-V ecosystem.
0: Circling back to Arteras, how do you interact with IP partners in general and specifically RISC-V partners as well?
1: Well, so with IP partners in general, we make sure that the IP works together through our NOC so that's kind of happening on the go if you will so a customer will take their favorite IP blocks put them all together some may speak AXI some may speak APB other may speak AHB and OCP what have you all those different network on chip protocols we as a network on chip provider get all of those together and translate all those together. So the IP vendors, when they have an AXI, for instance, that just connects to our AXI in the network on chip to establish the connectivity. And then we provide all the capabilities to define bandwidth, to define throughputs, latencies, and so forth, and make it safe and secure as these chips are connecting. With some IP vendors in the RISC-V ecosystem, we work together very proactively. So, for instance, with Sci-5, one of the key early risers in the uh, RISC-V ecosystem, we worked together. We gave them our NOC technology to build a demo system, and the customer can basically get the demo system showing a RISC-V from Sci-5 as it interacts with our NOC talks to memory and you can download it into an FPGA as a demo system. So with some of IP vendors in the RISC-V domain, we do this proactive integration work. So it all depends on which network on chip protocol these RISC-V cores understand. CHI, that's AMBA for cache coherency, is an important one. Some people speak that natively in the RISC-V world, some processors. Others uh, come out through AXI. It depends on whether you need to be coherent or not. And you have various ways of interacting there with our IP partners early on.
0: So with networks on chips often following protocols, like you mentioned, like AMBA and OCP, how does the RISC-V community deal with these protocols?
1: Well, the RISC-V community is really today very much focused on the innovation within the RISC-V processor core. So in a lot of instances, they will then work with their partners, typically the system architects who build the overall chip, and they will basically interact with them to make sure they use the right protocol at the outward interfaces of the subsystems they are building with RISC-V core. And then you may have other systems for subsystems for vision, for communication, and what have you on your system on chip or um, across your chiplets. So having said all that, that's one way of interacting with the, the partners that's typically the system architects. And we are an enabler in that equation that they then say, okay, which version of CHI do you support? And then those discussions are going on to make sure that the various IP blocks can be connected. Given the risk five specificity of or, specific ability to optimize the RISC V core, there's sometimes a need for co optimization, if you will, of the transport with the instruction set architecture. So, somebody adds an instruction to or a set of instructions to RISC V and then wants to have some very specific transport. That's something we can get involved in as well, with basically optimizing and co-optimizing the computing and the transport aspects. So various ways of interaction there with the various players in risk v
0: So overall, how has customer adoption been?
1: That's been good. We have several customers out there that are already using RISC-V. course, obviously in our business, in the IP world, you see everything very early on, and that can take quite some time until those chips get announced. We know of some of them out there, which are not publicly announced yet, who use RISC-V together with our FlexNoc technology. For instance, there were recent announcements of RISC-V players like Tenstorrent, who were licensing our IP and core in FlexNoc to really bring together the different components on chip for them. The quote from Jim Keller was quite telling there. He was basically in the press release saying something along the lines well. We have enough fun. He said it more seriously. We have enough fun with basically building our differentiation, our risk five differentiation for the various application domains they are targeting. And with our as a known player for the network on chip interconnect, they're basically de-risking the project and can rely on the network on chip connectivity to be there, which goes back to this plug-and-play as they innovate essentially the Risk v instruction to make it really work for their environment and for their target application. When it then comes to connecting everything on chip or across chip, that, that's we are the partners to do that.
0: Okay, so overall, how fast do you think the RISC-V adoption will be?
1: Well, we see um, numbers out there of RISC-V already being rolled out and having a certain number of chips out there that are in production. I think one thing is very clear, given the learnings from other ecosystems like that, namely ARM and Intel, other and in such set architectures, I think it'll be faster than that some of the other ecosystems developing, getting really ready, because we have really learned from those what needs to be done. You need the software there, you need the right verification environments there. So you need all the ecosystem support aspects there for risk five, And so I think it will be faster than a previous instructions that architecture's out there. So it's a very interesting future ahead, not without challenge. Things like verification is a big challenge with great freedom to add instruction comes great responsibility to verify all this, channeling my inner Spider-Man here. So you really have to make sure that those challenges are properly addressed. And uh, depending on the application domains, you will have some adoption faster, where in other application domains, it will take a little bit longer.
0: That makes sense. All right. Well, Frank, it's time for your off-the-cuff question. So if you could have one food right now, Frank, it doesn't matter if it's on the other side of the world, what would you have
1: i would have fesenjān do you know what that is no fesenjān <laughs> is an iranian dish and uh, it's a sweet and sour type stew it's very very yummy i highly recommend it, it comes typically with chicken or some form of poultry so that's uh, the dish I would be in the mood for right now, given that I've been hanging out with uh, a lot of Persian <laughs> friends um, who introduced me to new cool foods, including uh, including Fessenger.
0: That sounds wonderful. Well, Frank, I think that's all I have time for today. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thanks. Thank you for having me.
0: So what if biopsies could be done by tiny robots? or tissue, or cell transport in a minimally invasive fashion? Well, a team of researchers at the University of Waterloo may have discovered a way to do just this, with the help of a new generation of soft medical microbots. So these tiny, non-toxic, biocompatible, single centimeter long robots are made up of advanced hydrogel composites, which include sustainable cellulose nanoparticles derived from plants. So this research is cool on a bunch of different levels. First, this team from Waterloo University used a holistic approach to the design, synthesis, fabrication, and then the manipulation of these microbots. Second, that hydrogel. It can actually change shape when it has been exposed to external chemical stimulation. The ability to change the orientation of those cellulose nanoparticles is also crucial because that allowed researchers to change the shape of these microbots, which was vital to the fabrication process. Another super cool aspect here is that this advanced smart material is also self-healing. It can be programmed for a wide range of different shapes. Researchers were also able to cut the material and paste it back together without using glue or any other adhesives to form different shapes for different procedures. So this material can be changed even further with magnetism. And it's that magnetism that also facilitates the movements of these robots through the body. To test out this aspect of their research, this team had a single tiny robot move through a maze and controlled its movements using a magnetic field. Cute. (laughs) So what's next for these tiny robots? getting even tinier. This team plans to scale these tiny medical robots down to submillimeter sizes. So one of the keys to the success of this research was, as you can imagine, chemical engineering. Hamed Shavasan, a professor in the Department of Chemical Engineering at Waterloo University, explains this part of their project like this chemical engineers play a critical role in pushing the frontiers of medical micro-robotics research. Interestingly, tackling the many grand challenges of microrobotics requires the skill set and knowledge chemical engineers possess, including heat and mass transfer, fluid dynamics, reaction engineering, polymers, soft matter science, and biochemical systems. So, we are uniquely positioned to introduce innovative avenues in this emerging field super cool, right? So if you want even more information about this robotic study out of the University of Waterloo, I've included a couple links on this week's fish frying page on eejournal.com and in the description for this week's episode on YouTube as well. Hey, have you checked out EE e. Journal on social media yet? Well you should. You can find us at facebook.com slash EE Journal. If you're into X or Twitter, whatever, you can monitor our tweets at EE e. Journal TFM. And don't forget, if you would like to follow my personal account, check out Amelia D. 1978. And hey, if LinkedIn is more your thing, sure, I dig it. You can follow us or me on LinkedIn as well. And we have that YouTube channel, youtube.com slash eejournal. Folks, it is chock full of all kinds of techie videos, including our very popular Chalk Talk webcast series hosted by me. And of course, you can subscribe to our EE Journal YouTube channel as well. Also, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to this here podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or just about any other podcasting platform to listen to some super exciting upcoming episodes. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. If you know of any cool new technology or, heck, you just want to chat, shoot me a line at Amelia, that's A-M-E-L-I-A, at eejournal.com, or post a comment on our forums on eejournal. For the week of November 3rd, 2023, I'm Amelia Dalton, and you've been fried.